0: Well, gentlemen, obviously now when we're looking back at it, uh, there was an enormous amount of money wasted in Iowa. Uh, how much money? It depends on how you you know, calculate it, uh, how much it costs to get the number per vote. You know, there were different numbers out there showing that Nikki Haley paid the most for the amount of votes that she received. But given the fact that you ended up in a situation where after all this time, after all this money spent, after all this time spent in the state... That you end up having the lowest turnout in the last 25 years, just even with the defense of it being uh, cold as cold as a witch's teat. Uh, that I, I feel like this is a situation where you got to ask yourself, why are we throwing all this money at Iowa? Can't can't we just you know can we do it in Nevada next time? Can we can we do it in a warm place? You know why are we putting ourselves through this punishment? What is it about this do we think we deserve this like we've been bad people and so we just need to go through this complete frigid hellscape in order to uh have any right to to run for the presidency it just at some point don't we have to wake up and say why are we making it this hard on ourselves
1: from your lips to uh to god's ear and you know, we we saw the, the the democrats have sort of responded to to that and you know i think particularly because it was not a place where the president, President Biden, um, you know, performed well in in 2020. Uh, though I, I think at this point, probably the the hope has dimmed because, um, you know, is, is you know obviously President Trump did not win uh, the, the nomination or win win the primary in 2016 in Iowa. Uh, but now, you know, that we might be able to say, or I would contend that the scope of his victory in Iowa is probably the uh, final nail in the coffin to any sort of meaningful challenge to him for this cycle uh you know and particularly that he was able to humble pretty much the entirety of the iowa political class with very little effort expended on his part you know why not leave it in front of the cycle as a as a trophy uh to uh, to those who may challenge him in the future
0: (laughs) um now the fight obviously moves to new hampshire where the stakes are different and the expectations are different but uh, the same scenario is is in effect. Um, if you look at the latest polling uh, from New Hampshire, uh, it looks uh, as if it's you know still a double double digit lead uh, for Donald Trump. He's he's been uh, there campaigning with uh, Vivek Ramaswamy and Elise Stefanik uh, is going to be there in the in the coming days to do events with him. Uh, he's you know clearly I think uh, feels the the itch of competition there. From Nikki Haley to a greater degree uh, than either uh, Haley or DeSantis could individually put out in Iowa, and he definitely doesn't want that to uh, have any kind of glimmer of of hope that her campaign could go anywhere. So, uh, you know, even with the backing of Chris Sununu uh, and the like, you end you end up having a a relatively similar uh, result in terms of a double digit victory uh, for the former president. Dan, is this a scenario where? kind of in the opposite sense of the Iowa experience that uh, if, if Donald Trump uh, does have some kind of rejection from New Hampshire, that he becomes just the biggest foe of the state being part of the schedule next time around.
2: Yeah. I mean, he'll be, he'll be a a lame duck unless, you know, as long as the current constitutional order prevails at the end of his next term, he'll, he'll, he won't be eligible to run again. So I think dream big, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, big, big, big. If true, um, so I, I think he won't care because he doesn't care about anything that doesn't directly affect him at the minute he's talking about it. So I don't think he'll care. But I also think I expect him to 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 be at the upper limit of his polling in New Hampshire. I think um, I think there will be some discouragement of of anti-Trump forces in in New Hampshire. Some depression there. I think that his polling. Uh, lately in New Hampshire reflects the kind of peak uh, and and the beginning of the sort of downward uh, slope of the Haley boomlet as her problems, um, her many manifest problems became uh, more um, obvious to, to people who were shopping for an alternative to Trump. I think obviously DeSantis's collapse, um, as we've talked about before, a lot of those second choices uh, go to Trump. And so I expect him to perform very well in New Hampshire relative to his polling at, like I said, at the upper limit. And I think, um, you know, it'll be all over, but look, even if he, even if he somehow loses in New Hampshire and we can talk about it, I'd be curious to see if you guys disagree Um, or even if it's really close, like I don't even expect it to be really close, to be honest with you, Mm -hmm. but even if it's really close, you know, sure. He'll shit on New Hampshire a little bit. In the meantime, he will say it was stolen from him, but he'll go right. The very next race after Haley O gives him a scare, the very next race will be in her home state where he will smoke her by, you know, if she gets a bounce from a, a close finish in New Hampshire, he'll only smoke her by 15 points mm-hmm. instead of 30. Um, so, I mean, it's over. We've talked about, I mean, we're, we're I, I've heard a lot of other pundits, uh, first, second, third rate, and otherwise say similar things in recent days. But, you know, we're in a tough position because we have to talk about this thing. But it's over, Um, and some interesting things could happen in it being over and in kind of the death rattle. Um, But you know, it's over. And and then as far as Iowa goes, I mean, we've we've kicked around offline, and I think there's a very compelling argument for a, a dramatically different way of doing primaries in a number of respects. But more importantly, I think you know you need a basket of representative states. I think primaries should be done in tranches. You know, it's not it's not a federalism thing. Yes, states. State parties can decide whatever when they want to hold their primaries. But one of the few things that the RNC does have some influence over is, is you know, it, organizing the calendar that way and, and exerting at least some informal influence, if not formal influence, on on how that is lined up. And so certainly, I think there need to be more representative GOP states. In a weird way, you get you get two you get two non representative Republican states in different ways in Iowa mm-hmm. and New Hampshire. And you know, we talked about whether it's Nevada, whether it's North Carolina, whether it's Ohio, whether it's Missouri, I I think is a, is a, is a, uh, sleeper pick, you know, Mm -hmm. but I think it should be done in tranches. I think there should be a basket of States. I don't think this early dribble is really conducive to the way the media or the money dynamics or the narrative dynamics of these races develop now. And if there ever is an era in American politics and Republican politics, that's post Donald Trump, I'm not sure there will be, but, um, you know, that's definitely something to think about.
0: Um, uh, this is Thunderdome, and obviously, you know, uh, the declaration that this is over is coming a little earlier than I think many of us might have expected a few months ago. But I don't disagree with you, Dan. Um, I think, uh, you know, I've been saying for the last uh, uh, week or so uh, on Fox and elsewhere that I thought that this race would be over at the end of next month uh, officially uh, because obviously there is uh, just given the calendar – you have that uh, that uh, week there of of the of the South Carolina primary uh, coming as it does uh, near the end of, of February. And I think that that really is the kind of the point where the writing's on the wall and uh, you don't uh, I mean, immediately followed by presumably a, a dominant Trump win a few days later in Michigan. Uh, and I just think that March one is is the is the date when everybody's out. Um, and perhaps, you know, even a little bit earlier, depending on how South Carolina plays, but look, you know, I think that one of the things that we can take away from this is, is looking at these lessons and and looking at the different ways that, uh, people have been analyzing the situation. And I, I've seen basically two buckets of analysis, uh, repeatedly over the past week, uh, of people who are writing the DeSantis campaign obituary, um, and, I am not convinced by either of them. One is DeSantis uh, made a huge mistake by not being more blatantly critical of Donald Trump earlier uh, and that he should have been uh, more blatantly critical, you know, from kind of day one, as opposed to kind of warming up to it and finally getting there, I would say, in, in arguably the closing two or three months of the campaign being more vociferously critical um, the other is, uh, that, uh, that DeSantis, is big uh, mistake was that he criticized Donald Trump too much, that he should have been, uh, even more defensive of him, that he should have, uh, taken basically a, an approach that sounds a lot like what, uh, Vivek did. Uh, and I think we all know that, uh, that we all saw how that turned out for him. Uh, so I think that in this scenario, I, I just, I'm not convinced by either of those things. And I think that, yeah. Unless uh, DeSantis had the capability to wave a magic wand uh, and make all of the indictments that started to come down uh, on uh, the former president starting uh, in the the spring of last year, I just don't think that there's any path for him uh, that would have uh, been dramatically altered by him changing his tone towards Donald Trump. What say you?
2: Yeah, I saw I'll, I'll jump on this one first. I think basically I agree that there's, you know, I said I think I said on Twitter the other day that you know, all the takes I've, I've read on what DeSantis could have done differently are wrong because there's nothing that DeSantis could have done differently to have won. I think that's true because I think that the size of the lead was so big. I think Trump's power over the voters that they're both competing for is so absolute. I mean, a lot of the Trump accounts are calling DeSantis a swamp rhino Now, whatever you want to call DeSantis disloyal, whatever, uh, awkward wooden, you know, um, Uh, confused hire bad advisors whatever i think swamp rhino is is um kind of indicative of where the level of analysis and thinking is of the of the kind of trump influencer set but i do think there's a couple of things that you're just saying that
0: because neocon warmonger speaker mike johnson is telling you to say that (laughs) right exactly
2: (laughs) and so so, but I, i think there are a couple of
0: things some of which we've talked about before one of which has just kind of occurred
2: to me maybe a little bit differently than I've put the emphasis on it before. But we've talked about the weird rollout and the rollout itself, the Twitter rollout and all that stuff. It wasn't necessarily, you know, fatal. It was an odd message to lead with, but it also indicated the, the kind of where, where DeSantis's head was at. And, you know, it, you know, things move fast and and he built a lot of his early campaign and a lot of his criticism on Trump, like his limited early criticism of Trump about, around COVID And a lot of that online rollout around very niche issues to the online right that didn't end up having that much purchase, they were also kind of inartfully executed on a logistical and tactical level. So that was a big one. I do think one thing where the blame rests entirely outside of the campaign, I've talked in the past about um, DeSantis, his his mistake in going after Disney in the ham-fisted way that he did and some of the sort of stuff that scared the Chamber of Commerce types, I think that's a big, big, big piece of it. Because don't don't forget, they ran and hid, you know, as it were, you know, between Nikki Haley's skirts, that, that class of donors, because of those sorts of issues. So that's a big one. But another one along the same lines that I haven't thought about enough, I think, or ha- hasn't been given enough emphasis, is the quote-unquote don't-say-gay bill. Because we're talking about, in the world of, billionaire millionaire centimillionaire gop donors who can move mountains and who can signal to a broader class of supporters and influencers and um max donors um that this guy is one of us or is okay in that very small world of accountable number of people the liberal medias for lack of a better you know phrase and the liberal uh sort of messaging conglomerates um uh work on don't quote unquote don't say gay and the misrepresentation of what that bill did and the the slanders of what you know the intention was and what the policy was really had an effect and they had and they spooked a a small handful of very influential um very rich gop donors who have who are so you know socially liberal on those issues so that that's another one that's just sort of popped into my head in recent days um and I think that there's some interaction there. Last thing I'll say is there's some interaction there because, again, these donors went to Haley. Haley had no natural constituency, or certainly not a natural constituency of this size. They went to Haley when they saw the kind of campaign DeSantis was going to run, and they saw the early second term priorities that his administration had. There's another world in which DeSantis has all of his own voters and all of Haley's voters. Now, of course, <laughs> that brings us back to the original point that when you put those two numbers together, it does not equal fifty one. Yeah. So so I mean, all of this is is kind of aside the point. Yeah,
1: I, I think that um I think now with the benefit of of hindsight, I think that the the best thing DeSantis could have done, and you know again, this is the guy that I you know by the time you know primary rolls around, he will probably be the guy that I marked my ballot for, you know nonetheless. Even if the race, you know, will be decided by then, was he shouldn't have run? I mean, I, I think that, uh, you know, because you you look at and I think Ben, you make a great point about really the indictments. If you look at the polling averages, um, you know, in basically probably not the most low ebb for Trump, but the place where the delta between Trump and DeSantis was the lowest was right around mid February of last year, where Trump was sitting at about forty six percent, DeSantis was sitting at thirty one. A little bit over thirty-one uh, percent, probably the, the again the high watermark for for not Trumps during this cycle, um, and because you know what have we had? We you know had a underperformance. Uh, I guess I wouldn't say disastrous, but I mean a a, a significant underperformance for Republicans um, in the twenty twenty two elections, which you know I think that <laughs> you could say Donald Trump Trump had his fingerprints over substantially both in you know, explicitly and in supporting some of the candidates like Herschel Walker down in Georgia. And then, you know, sort of implicitly with some people like uh, you know, J.R. Majewski, who ran in a you know, Toledo-based seat in Ohio, that's, you know, is very winnable now for for Republicans, uh, but was a you know deeply flawed candidate. Uh but sort of ran as kind of the the MAGA guy. Um you know and this was the point of probably maximum leverage for DeSantis, where I think we all began to believe in the like, well, could you have Trumpism without Trump kind of thing? You know, it's a, you know, the better kind of Trumpism. And, you know, it turned out that all it took was 45 days later when, you know, Alvin Bragg, I mean, Alvin Bragg basically put shock paddles on, you know, the the Trump 24 effort. And, you know, you go from Trump pulling in, you know, around the mid forties, give or take. And, you know, by, um, you know, by being of April, he breaks 50%. On on sort of national polling averages and never falls below it again. Um, And, you know, from and DeSantis never gets as close, never gets as high as he did in mid February. And it's just like kind of a long, slow decline to sort of where he is now. So I I think even if he had run a completely flawless campaign, and I think there's a lot, especially in that early rollout, I think he should have. I mean, if you want to be president and you've just come off that big W, and I, I realized there were some state legal reasons why he couldn't, but you needed to sort of capture that momentum and strike while the iron is hot and really kind of lacks to be the not Trump guy. Uh, but the fact that he, you know, kind of waited and the field got bigger with people that, you know, on paper were credible candidates, you know, Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, um, you know, others, you know, Mike Pence. Um, you know, I, I think he it just became, he just became one of a number of them. Now, as far as how he was interacting with with Trump, I, I think I think that you're large. I, so Ben, I think I think think strategically, you're correct, and tactically, to an extent, that he was kind of in this sort of catch twenty two. But I, it, what I'm about to say, I think, reinforces why you know now in retrospect, he probably shouldn't have run at all. Of, I mean, <laughs> to win an election, you need to beat everybody else. And, you know, Donald Trump was the guy that was always had the most votes. Um, And you needed to disabuse people of of reasons to vote for him or reasons to vote for you because you're better than Trump, which requires either a positive contrast of you contrasting positively, which is implicitly negative or explicitly negative. He's bad for all these reasons. Um, You know, the fact that like DeSantis, because I think it was almost unnavigatable. I think, I think Trump's, weak. I think looking back on it, Trump's weakness was, was an illusion. Um, and I, I think that Trump continues to be, is the dominant force in Republican, well say in the Republican coalition. Um,
0: well, I, I would argue he's the dominant force in American politics, period, both as yeah, an animating yeah. force for the Democrats and as an animating force for the Republicans.
2: Yeah, can He's I just a- can I just say something, though, th- about the about the indictments? Because, you know, maybe this is exceedingly obvious, but in the last week, people have cohered around the empirical certainty that the indictments pushed Trump over the top. And I think that's right. It's just funny to me how utterly deranged that is as an empirical fact and how little it's remarked upon. I mean, we, we all, we've talked about a lot about the indictments. We talked about them on this podcast when they came out, no shortage of political commentary on them. Some of them are really bad. The brag one is garbage. You know, the elements of the, of the, you know, the, the, the insurrection indictment, really garbage. Georgia one's a little bit better. Now there's problems, with prosecutorial misconduct there. I get it. But you know, it's one of those classic examples where if you told somebody 20 years ago, well, you know, you, there, you'd see political analysis after Iowa and all of the talking heads would agree as a matter of course that it was the 91 criminal charges that put the candidate over the top and made his lead insurmountable. You know, that's just an utterly deranged fact. And, and what I think it points to, and it's, it's worth saying, and I've said it before and I'll say it again, Donald Trump's main advantage, his superpower, people talk about his shamelessness. It, it's not quite right his superpower is that he doesn't care about the United States constitution the republican party his political allies his voters anyone who works for him the uh institution of the rule of law um the bible uh puppies on the right his superpower is he does not care about any of those things and I'm, I'm not saying i'm not raising my voice it's just it's just a fact he's willing to um, do whatever it takes to any of those things to the again the tr- peaceful transfer of power the rule of law any of those things he's willing to do whatever it takes to, certainly the republican Party is of no consequence to him he he ignored every rnc sanctioned debate in this race right he's he uh, you know he chose the head of the rnc the rnc does a ton of in-kind work for him even when it's supposed to be formally neutral. the longest
0: serving he, head of the rnc <laughs> he,
2: yeah and he and he doesn't he doesn't care about their legitimacy or their The future of the party or any of the state level parties or any of that stuff, right? So that's a tremendous advantage. It's like, it's like Hamas, you know, right? If you're if you're commander in Hamas and you've got a bunch of young men wearing suicide vests for you, who you do not care about, right? That gives you tremendous strategic flexibility to go and and fuck shit up. And, you know, and so so the fact that he would make, for instance, his entire presidential campaign to be in the service of his legal strategy right every every single solitary every one every single decision he's made in his presidential campaign or none has been in the service of his legal strategy right and that's the kind of power that no other republican who's ever run for president up to and including you know take your pick richard Nixon, um has ever had the ability to think that way no one's ever been quite that big of a sociopath so that's a huge advantage
1: a couple of responses to that. One, I think that that's, I will say that I, I don't think you mean it this way. I think it's true in as much as his legal strategy is to be president again and to try to, you know, cover himself with sort of the privileges and immunity that that office provides, because otherwise I think his efforts to, you know, uh, be very critical of judges, of clerks, of those kind of things are probably a negative for his you know legal um uh, prognosis. Um, I, I think the other thing too, is, you know, I, th- I think you're right that he sort of obviously centers himself on all of these kind of things, but like, why wouldn't you, if you could, if you can get away with what he's doing, I mean, if you can basically just trash people, but they're still falling over themselves backwards to do stuff for you, why, totally. why wouldn't you? And I guess I want, I, I do want to go back to one thing, um, that you'd said before Dan that I, I do disagree with um in large part and it was sort of of the and him sort of turning off uh you know donors i th- i think what we can say about big donors and we, we certainly saw it in 2016 is they fo- they will follow power even if they don't like that guy um and i think if desantis had been able to you know i i don't know that another 200 million dollars or whatever you want to say it is a billion dollars would have made a difference in this race um for, for, for governor DeSantis. I, I think that the, the deck was already pretty well stacked against him. Um, and I think that the, the benefit he would gain from would lose from being a culture warrior and particularly with the Disney stuff, stuff that I think was on net good things to maybe crudely executed or ham handed, but, you know, at large sort of the, he fights kind of thing that was, uh, again, it was, the problem was it was too sophisticated instead of just being you know, you know, rhetorical, uh, you know, gobbledygook that was sort of the Trump thing. Um, I think that those kind of things put him on the map. And you know, to, if he had been able to sort of, I mean, it was—it's kind of like he was like halfway between Glenn Youngkin and Donald Trump, and it like it just neither one of them really work. Especially because both both Youngkin and Trump's personalities, you know, depending on kind of what you're looking for, are just much more winsome. Uh, I, I do think the personality thing is the guy who. This will be another cycle where the sort of competent sober governor is my guy um, and that that person fails because they are not, you know, you know, doing song and dance to I- excite people. Um, so I, I think that those, you know, th- those challenges were probably always insurmountable and in trying to make a handful. I mean, like if money was, if money was completely conclusive, right. You know, the, the, the Cook brothers would have a lot more to show for their efforts than criminal justice reform over their time in politics or, you know, Michael Bloomberg would be in his third term as president Mm -hmm. um, as he was is mayor. So,
2: so, but here's, here's what I would say to that. So uh, partly I think it's more, it's, it's, it's about signaling and it's about a broader class. It's not just about the money one, but, but on the point of the money, I mean, you had both the super PAC and the DeSantis campaign, canceling buys left and right, narrowing the scope of their, engagements and their plans in a lot of these markets. You had massive internal disagreements. You had, you know, staff staffing turnover, all all, all of that stuff. And two, we just we just kind of said, and I think we all agree that, you know, DeSantis's theory of the race was flawed and that a lot of those Trump voters were never gettable. Right. That Trump's weakness was an illusion, as you said. And you know, my contention but I think, I think that- we
1: know that now. But I don't know that that was completely. I think in the in the aftermath of 2022, where DeSantis for you know a period of a few months looked like you know looked like somebody who could challenge. You know, looked like somebody who could wear the crown. Um, and, and I think that just sort of hit with reality. And I, I don't think, you know, yeah, yeah, may, maybe if that had all happened in February, January, or February of, of 2023 if he had pushed all his chips in on the table at that point, but you know the with some of that stuff, you know the 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 board had already been set with some of the things he was going to do uh, culturally. and again, if he if he had been able to build momentum, you know look I, I think here's here's a again not that he is one of these donors because he's a Democrat, but I think that in in the corporate America, I think Jamie Diamond is probably um one of the if not the most politically sophisticated, ceos in america and part of it is because he both it's the 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 intersection that i think is amazing in public life right now is to give a shit and not give a shit at the same time to actually care about things but to not really care about hurting somebody's feelings and and diamond is sort of like the king of this and you know he's at davos basically saying look you know um first of all like let's not otherize the half of the country you know that voted for donald trump that you know, that he's, you know, that these people are just MAGA and because he does some bad behavior, they all endorse that bad behavior. By the way, Trump was right on a lot of policies and even signaled out immigration, which I thought was kind of eyebrow raising. But, you know, again, if I think part of it is because Trump was a winner that delivered. Do, do, do you really think that those guys would have felt that bad about the Disney stuff if Ron DeSantis was looked like a viable potential nominee and was like, yeah, we're going to get rid of CFPB, or we're gonna do you know whatever whatever it is. I mean, I think those guys. I I think it was as much those guys posturing for their friends at the country club and that kind of stuff as it was anything else. I mean, I you know, maybe they. I mean, I'm sure they do have more moderate or liberal social views. But like, do you really think that that was gonna get in the way of the wallet of those guys if if the seemed viable? Because I don't think so.
2: Oh, but but look, I mean, look, just look at what happened. I mean, or what what's what's happened so far. Like, no doubt just like they did in 2016, all of those guys will get in line to one degree or another with Trump now that Iowa's behind us. But we spent three months on this podcast talking about the flight of money to Nikki Haley. And what I'm saying is, it was an illusion that DeSantis had all of those Trump, you know, anti-woke voters or lib-tier drinking voters were gettable. They were, they were not gettable. I mean, tr- all, all Trump had to do was say a couple nasty things about him, come up with like one of his worst nicknames for anybody. <laughs> and it was enough. I mean, it, he barely had to lift a, a pinky. And, and one of the most effective conservative governors in the country was reduced legit polling. And now everybody in MAGA world hates him and his political future is over. Right. So it, it was very easy for Trump to do that. And hindsight being what it was, we now know that where DeSantis's better pool of potential voters was is on that whole 25% of the electorate that went from 10 different candidates to cohere behind Nikki Haley. Like, he could have had those votes. There's nothing intrinsically better about Haley, um, you know, in, in a lot of their eyes than there is about DeSantis. And also, you know, another little interesting fact is, you know, who would you say has said more negative stuff about Trump in the last call it three months desantis or haley it's just clearly desantis desantis yeah. has has taken on trump in, in greater specifics more frequently on substance haley kind of says very vague things about trump and she doesn't emphasize it you know but all of that sort of country club college educated money that comes uh, sorry uh votes that come sort of with not because of but with along for the ride with those big mega donors, they went to Haley. And I'm just saying that DeSantis could have had those
1: guys. And that was the better play. I, th- I think, I think
0: I want to shift topics here, but quickly, John,
1: I, I just think that those people are such junior partners in the Trump coalition. And I agree that I, I would probably prefer a somewhat different looking coalition, but I, I don't think Nikki Haley sitting at 12% nationally in New Hampshire is weird for lots of reasons. We don't need to belabor right now. Um, I think that Santos had probably the right theory of the case, in um, as much as there was the possibility of one. It just turned out that th- this was a an unwinnable race.
0: Yeah, and that's one of the reasons why, uh, in the definitive uh, scientifically calculated uh, list of the top ten worst presidential campaigns in the modern era, uh, DeSantis uh, does not actually occupy one of those positions for me because I think that in order to make it in those top ten uh, a, a, an essential element is a path to victory. Uh, and I think that, uh, this is just an indication that there was no path to victory, uh, in a realistic sense. Uh, and there is no thing that he could have done all that much differently. I think, um, that, that would have resulted in that the only path I think he could have had is if all these indictments came down maybe a year earlier and, uh, and you had all of these different, you know, things, you know, kick off in terms of investigations and court processes and everything else, uh, on, on that type of schedule, as opposed to when they did. Um, so mentally from my perspective, I'm just going to associate Desantis's performance with the 2023 season for the Miami Dolphins, um, where you have the, uh, the complete boat racing of the Denver Broncos, uh, uh to, you know, an incredible tune as being kind of his high point. Uh, and then, you know, it, he he sort of slumps and slumps and slumps and then dies in the cold. <laughs> in the yeah. Midwest. So
2: where so, uh, so where it, where where are the Wonder Boys from the Washington Commanders 2014 coaching staff left in the playoffs? Who's left? Come on, guys. You guys you guys have been on the group chat. You've been singing the praises of that coaching staff to me. You especially John are, are <laughs> a Mike Shanahan fanboy.
0: Shanahan and LaFleur. Yeah. Yeah, you well, we got La, two of them. Well,
2: La, <laughs> La, four is around, but you, John, in particular, you are such a McDaniel fanboy, and he got smoked. Well, got no, smoked but in, I,
0: I, I, in, def, in his defense, and I actually strongly encourage you to watch the in season hard knocks uh, for them uh, this year because it was quite good. They were decimated by injuries, absolutely decimated. They were signing, they literally signed their three linebackers who started that Kansas City Chiefs game off the street in the prior two weeks. Because they were that desperate for linebacker help, they had nothing on defense, and that I, I actually think if 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 that injury uh, play out had not happened, I think they could have won a game. Uh, but by the yeah. way, you guys, you
2: guys, you NFC East fans, Ben, you dodged a huge goal. Did you see our mutual friend, friend of the podcast, Ovik Roy, tweeted the other day? I think it was the day before yesterday. He was in the Dallas Fort Worth Airport. He's, yes, I, I asked him online. line. He said he was completely serious. He said he was sitting in the DFW airport and he heard a, a you know, woman's voice come over the loudspeaker and say, "Will William Belichick please come to the gate?"
0: <laughs> I one hundred percent. I one hundred percent believe that because I believe that that was the day that it that. Uh, it was announced that he had done an interview with the Falcons and it would be very Falcons esque that he would just like fly through DFW to go to like, like just, you know, I don't know where he would be coming from, but I totally believe it was him. <laughs> yeah. Wait, so um, let me
2: ask you, let me ask you a question, Ben, about your top 10 list. How come I believe I thought it was very well done. I believe that um, Goldwater was not on it. Why did you decide to leave him off?
0: Oh, um, I said last 50 years. So Oh, so he didn't make a cutoff. So okay. he, he would have not. But there are actually a ton of, I mean, there are a ton of ones that are from, if you extend it out, I mean, not just Goldwater, but George Romney has to be considered one of the worst. You know, Ooh. I mean, people forget, like the George Romney campaign, at least Goldwater, you know, won the nomination. The George Romney campaign, he was by far considered like the, the Jeb Bush of his time, like he's going to automatically be the pick. There were tons of polls showing that made a ton of sense. Uh, and then he gives that wackadoo interview and basically everything collapses from there, which, you know, you can interpret how you will, how that played into Mitt Romney's career. Um, but it's, there, there's a ton of great, and then there's all these generals from back in the, in like the early 1900s, uh, who all have like huge masses of support, uh, and then flame out like a, a proto Wesley Clark style. Um, uh, so, so there's like, you could, this could be a book actually like you could do a book and you could you could have like 50 campaigns in there but anyway um the i do want to shift to talking about uh what is now there's a couple different articles about it uh this week um an, a, a ever more present topic of conversation you mentioned the fact that nikki haley has been far more uh reticent about Criticizing Donald Trump. Well, one of the reasons is that there is a a theory out there that she is very much in contention uh, to be his vice president, um, and there, there, you know, there's a lot of names on that list. Um, there's a kind of throw spaghetti at the wall piece from from Jmart in Politico that runs through a bunch of these different options. Uh, personally, I don't think that there's anyone in particular who. Uh, is, is necessarily shining at this moment. And we've talked a little bit about Christine Nome on the podcast. It's very clear that Elise Stefanik is, like, openly lobbying for it. Um, and uh, and I don't think she's going to get it. Uh, and I think that it's very clear that now that we're getting a little more serious about this, the idea that he's going to pick somebody like Carrie Lake is, is just, like, nobody really thinks that. Um, the, the one thing that I do think is true, though, is that he's going to pick someone who he feels confident in uh and and avoid what he views as a quote-unquote mistake in picking a guy like mike pence who whose loyalty was less to trump uh and more to you know his his sort of stiff high-mindedness about
1: uh about the constitution and the rule of law and all these other things um but so let's face it, whoever it is is going to be within six to 12 months you know blacklisted from trump world yeah, well, <laughs> of course, of course. I have
0: a theory about this. Um, and and I have a name that I believe is, is a much likelier choice than a lot of people think, uh, in part because I think that uh, everyone assumes that it's going to be a woman. Uh, and that name, gentlemen, uh, is Senator Tim Scott. Um, there are a couple of reasons that I think this. One is, I think that Trump would view Scott as someone who would be uh, have a lot of the same positives as Pence without necessarily any of the quote unquote negatives. I think that he really would like to put someone up who he could be confident in debating someone like Kamala Harris and having an advantage in doing so. Um, The other thing is that I think, you know, just in terms of his own ambitions It's not necessarily clear to me that Tim Scott wants to be kind of the, you know, in politics in the long term, even in his life. This, you know, this choice to kind of run for president was a little surprising for that reason. Uh, And I think that there's a part of Trump that doesn't want to pick someone who's too ambitious, which is not to say that they don't want to run for president. But it's like if your ambition is for yourself and you're the lame duck president, which he, you know, understands that on some level that he will be. Then someone like Nikki Haley starts running for president the minute that you arrive in Washington, uh, and and that's something that I think you don't necessarily have to worry about as much with Tim Scott. I think he would be happy to run for president, but maybe not behave in a way that would would rock the boat with his own ambition. Um, and then finally, I just think that you know again with the the kind of uh, uh, wanting wanting to be the star of the show. I think that, that what Trump wants more than anything, uh, is obviously he needs to be the biggest star. He doesn't want to make one of these uh, people who he adds to his ticket, you know, the next Sarah Palin or something like that. He doesn't want to have any competition for that, which is why someone like Carrie Lake was never going to be the choice. Um, and I think that that leads me to, you know, someone like Scott as being just kind of this safe, uh, togetherness unity uh olive branch without actually being from the same world as as the people who trump and uh you know him personally and his family hate um so that's that's my personal off off the wall kind of theory i'm curious as to what your thoughts are on that and of course on the on the you know haley stefanik you know other crew of, of people who are clearly interested in the job
1: you know, it's interesting because I hadn't seen the Jonathan Martin piece. I've just been skimming through it. Um, there's a name in there that uh, you guys won't be surprised is intriguing to me. And it's funny because like you can kind of talk yourself into imagining it happen. And that's a uh, favorite of the podcast, uh, governor, Doug Burgum. Right. I mean, yeah. we know that Trump does like other guys that are rich and don't need the money. Uh, Burgum certainly qualifies. I don't think, I mean, while he ran for president, I don't think it's one where Trump's got to worry about him overshadowing him, uh, that kind of stuff. Um, you know, it's it. it, it he is another one that would be a really safe pick. I agree with you. I think Tim Scott, uh, is is interesting. I mean, from the from this piece, I think Marsha Blackburn, you know, sort of does a lot. I mean, I feel like Marsha Blackburn probably does a lot of the same stuff for you that somebody like Christy Noem does, but maybe without some of the baggage around it. Um, you know, where Noem has been. I on, agree. I agree. Yeah. On the social issues, and I think that I think that Senator Blackburn is probably also. You, you know probably a more familiar face to the people that watch conservative media um it has been you know pretty rock rub trump from you know the time he got the nomination in 16 um it's hard to say i mean like you know because it is his party you, you know kind of everyone's gonna i mean it's you know the, the you know the guy's question with marcia is because i think she's you know late 60s early 70s is like you know does she want to be president um you I'm sure almost everyone in the Senate wants to be president or would love to see themselves, you know, behind the resolute desk. But, you know, it is an interesting question. I mean, it becomes sort of, you know, the Trump's sort of last, you know, sort of middle finger to, you know, kind of the Republican Party as an institution is, you know, I'm going to pick somebody who has no interest in succeeding me. And hey, guess what, in 2028, it's going to be, you know, provided he wins, you know, it's going to be absolute, you know, war of all against all, you know, without a, you know, kind of heir to the throne, which would also be a similarly, you know, the seat, does Trump make himself RNC chairman and you know seizing whatever of the apprentice is you know all these you know ambitious politicians wanting to be you know the next Republican nominee and you know Trump is testing them. Um, it's it's really interesting. It's it's an interesting question, but it's like one of those ones for like to some degree, like I don't even really know how much it matters. I mean, like, you know, this this is gonna be an election up that's gonna be totally centered around negative partisanship. It'd be Democrats that hate hate Donald Trump and republicans who you know it's kind of amazing i think that n- not the same degree but i mean i think that there's an antipathy now for for joe biden that was harder to imagine for a guy who's just like kind of there right you know it's uh, you know relative to you know his predecessors whether it's you know bill clinton um you know or or barack obama that became you know that did stuff that made them sort of objects of of hate and ridicule biden again is just kind of like sort of like this tofu generic democratic presidency, but his, you know, and I think a lot of it again is because of the sort of anti, anti anti-Trumpness then uh, reaction. Uh, But, you know, it's wild, man. We're going to, we're going to have two guys that are pretty old, that are going up against each other yet again. um, I mean, it's, it's all kind of unprecedented. And, um, you know, Dan, I know you and I were talking a little bit about this yesterday. It's like, I kind of wonder, worry about the consequences either way. And, you know, again, somebody like Burgum, like, do you feel, or Tim Scott, do you feel a little bit better in sort of their like norminess or, I I don't know. Yeah, John,
2: I actually think the vice presidents matter a great deal. And and I'll just, I'll give you one piece of data or or not even data, but a, a hypothetical that maybe will make you see my point. If Kamala Harris was not on the ticket, I think Biden would be in much better shape, like not even... A point or two. I think he'd be in much better shape electorally um, if somebody better than Kamala Harris were on the ticket with him. So I do think it's going to matter. I think it's going to matter on the GOP side. I hadn't thought much about Scott. Obviously, we talked about him making that play kind of by entering the race. So it's always been in the back of my mind. I think he'd be a great pick for Trump. I think um, it'd be very smart of him. It'd also be very funny to just hear Trump, you know Trump, who doesn't even know what the quiet part sounds like, to just say, "Ladies and gentlemen, my black vice presidential, <laughs> right? well, folks, he's black. Look at how black he is." You
0: know, so I do think,
2: I do think there's, you know, I think it would be very. Well, it, well, I, I
0: will just interject something though about that. If you think about like one moment that Tim Scott had during his run that actually stuck out, it was how he infuriated uh, and won the argument. Clearly, uh, the ladies of the View. Over the race stuff, and, right. and to me, you know, for for someone who is clearly t- shares the temptation that so many other Republicans do to pursue the black male vote, um, they, I mean, that is their, you know, I I personally find it to be, you know, uh, the, the 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 white whale, really, you know, uh, ironically of of this of this set of people who really just see sort of, well, if we can get the Democrat black vote under this certain number and we can win everywhere. Uh, And and they're very much I mean, that's something he has in common with the with the consultant class, which, by the way, led them to, from my perspective, ignore and, and lack the appreciation of how much middle class Hispanic voters were shifting in their direction for multiple election cycles. Uh, without them actually doing anything to really earn it, uh, and without them understanding what the priorities of those voters actually
2: offering are. anything specific, yeah. Yes. So actually, you know, I I think that's another another very good point. I think so, Scott. I mean, for selfish reasons, I think Scott would be a, a great a great choice for him. I also think he brings strategic benefit to Trump's campaign as as someone you know, if Trump wants to win. It'd be a be a good choice for him. But it's I don't know if you guys saw this awful thing that. Uh, Matt Gates said on his podcast, and I can pretty much verbatim quote it. He said, "For every Karen we yeah. lose, we're going to pick up a Julio or a Jamal." Right? Um, thanks, Matt, <laughs> Matt Gates.
0: Um, so, deep, you know, the, deep political analysis from Matt Gates. Yeah, right he said, I mean, and this, a, and this
1: is what This is with who is the VP, or just that there's a VP? That no, no, is no a just not, in general. He's just he's just general. talking
2: about MAGA's, He's talking about MAGA's women problem, right? So, so he th- that's he's making a very <laughs> making a very sophisticated, artful argument for, um, you know, just picking a VP based on 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 that trend. The fact that you're picking up minority, non-white and, males. And
0: Gates, and Gates, of course, along with Don Jr. has been openly critical of the idea of adding Nikki Haley. And there yeah. is something kind of personally vindictive and very of of their ilk that they would pick someone who literally goes to church with her and is one of her political uh uh friends uh in uh, you know historically and uh, uh you know in in terms of of the experience in south carolina uh, as as someone yeah, so, you know, no we don't want you we want him you know we want,
2: so and so i do think i will say i will go on a limb and say there's no way in hell Nikki haley will be Trump's vice president, I think it's just over determined the reasons why that's not going to be the case. The base revolt. Yeah. You know, of course, the base would get in line, um, but they'd be annoyed. And Trump doesn't see any reason to annoy them unless he gets some big advantage on the other side. I think there are plenty of other people who, getting back to our earlier topic of conversation, would be just as comfortable, you know, in the donor class and the country club Republican class and the college educated class, just as comfortable with Tim Scott, who still has vestigial Muscle memory of the sort of Reaganist, you know, Reagan conservatism. Uh, He can still do that. He still I presumably believe even believe some of it. So I think he would make a lot more sense. There's no way in hell it is going to be Nikki Haley, like less than 1% chance it's going to be Nikki Haley. I do think there's a better chance than you do that it'll be Stefanic. The only question I have is, you know, you can say a lot of things about Trump. I just did say a lot of things about Trump, but he does have a lot of um, women in high, high places. He going back to his business career, certainly the amount of trust he places in his, in his daughter um, and, and, and his political advisors and, um, and his lawyers. um, He's, he's got a lot of women around him, but I think there's a more general distinction that Trump makes. He, People who are pretty senior, at least in his first term, he liked he, he of course, he wants everybody to kiss the ring and he wants everybody to get in line and, and say he's a great dear leader and all that stuff. But I think he he values a kind of independence in mind and competence, you know, um, in addition to that kissing of the ring. And I, I do think, you know, I have no direct evidence of this, but I do think he respected Mike Pence quite a bit up, up till and including uh, up to and, and, and just before, you know, January 6th. And I don't know if some of those, like, I don't know if Trump's going to respect Christy Noem, yeah. um or Carrie Lake. Like they're, they're just like, you can see the way he kind of, you can see the way he kind of looks at Marge Green or, or that sort of class um, of, of Republican women and doesn't respect them, even though he appreciates their support. Um, there are plenty of other, you know, women who he could pick that, he would, you know, respect that are a little bit more um, serious and a little bit more credible, but the names in particular that are being floated and up to, you know, it, Stefanik is probably a borderline case. I think she's definitely a a more serious person. The problem with Stefanik is that she's not a conservative by any measure yeah. of the word. Um. So I don't know, but I think that's, I think that's a distinction. I think the problem with even a Blackburn, I mean, Blackburn's certainly more serious than Christy gnome and more and more i think smarter and all that stuff but um even still i don't think that's quite the caliber of (laughs) intellect believe it or not i'm using that word that i think trump is going to look for at the high levels
0: well i just think that this it's part of it is skill set stefanica is is sort of a a loyalist and a fundraiser (laughs) um and that's that's its own kind of uh skill um you know i mean to be honest if in a in a properly ordered situation I would vastly prefer that she was running the RNC or something like that um you know it's a it's a waste of her to kind of have her in the role that she is uh currently except for obviously what she was able to do when it came to those questions directed at those uh you know uh presidents of of, uh, high level colleges and again that's a when when these people have moments when they just kind of pop uh I think that helps them with Trump because he sees, Oh, okay. They have that skill. I didn't know that they could do that. Uh, And he likes that. Uh, But I also think that, you know, again, if you think this is an election where you see those trending numbers in the black vote, particularly among black men, and you say, I want to, I want this to be an election where I get that, you know, and I do something like that where the the numbers are things that I'm going to talk about for years. Um, That's, that's something that i just think is real and i and i could see it being a more blatant uh kind of thing than saying you know hey i'm gonna pick a woman you know don't you like women you know uh, hey suburb women we need you back like i just don't think that he wants to that seems desperate to me
2: and that ship has sailed too i yeah. think i mean yeah. the, the 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 gender voting gap between millennials and zoomers i mean i think it doubled it's that 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 ship is gone. It's it's I've said this before, but it's I think it's the biggest story in American electoral politics is that women are just Democrats now and men are just Republicans. And it's no, going to get
1: I, worse. I do think there's a level of complexity to that, though, because if you look at younger voters, I, I think this is. Yeah. But because I think if you look at what public opinion strategies this was, I think, in 2012 pointed out and served sort of one of the many Romney autopsies was that younger voters are also much more likely to be non white. So you know you've you've got kind of multiple you know sort of factors uh, you know converging there. I mean, I, I think I think your point is well taken, but I think you know in in the short run, yeah, that, that might make sense, but in the long run, women live longer than men, and I think women are higher propensity voters than men are. It's probably, you know, uh, I, I, I think again, I don't think something that's probably fixable during a you know a Trump administration, but uh, you want to give yourself as many paths to victory as you can and i feel like that you know the trump playbook is you know you're kind of always trying to draw like an inside straight and you know but it's sometimes it's it's good to be able to you know have lots of outs on the the hand you're playing and we seem to be wanting to not have as many outs.
0: Yeah. Um well let's wrap up with this. Um you know we're going to see this uh, this situation uh play out over the coming months that's going to be very interesting i think to see regarding continued democratic concerns. Uh, about Joe Biden's weakness, uh, about his, uh, you know, inability to kind of run a functional traditional campaign, in any one sense, the uh, the election, the first ele- uh, primary election, on the Democratic calendar, uh, is coming up uh, very soon, beginning of February, uh, in South Carolina. There is not a current plan uh, at on the White House schedule for. Joe Biden to even go to South Carolina before they start voting. Uh, now that may change maybe he does make an appearance. I would think that they would try to make something work. but as this kind of plays out and you see you know not just Donald Trump in the courtroom but Donald Trump presumably you know doing all these rallies and things that he loves to do, uh, you know and potentially wrapping this up quite early to the point that he's not going to have to spend more resources on on winning uh, the nomination. Doesn't that contrast become bigger and bigger and bigger? And isn't there going to be more pressure put on Biden by Democrats, uh, including, you know, people who are in, you know, running for reelection in the Senate in critical spaces and and in, in states that matter on the presidential level? You know, states like Ohio, like for him to get out there, uh, even if it just is, you know, reduced in terms of his capacity uh, to function or or do more than read a speech off a prompter.
2: I think he's going to have to, I think he's going to have to match Trump, right? To certain, I mean, he had this wonderful cover of the pandemic in 2020 that let him run the basement uh, campaign that he did. And he was in better cognitive shape than than he was now. And it's a huge problem. But if Trump is going to be inclined to sit on his ass, then Biden will certainly match that. I think we talked we talked on this podcast before once I think in passing about whether we thought there were going to be any debates. I still kind of think there won't be, um, and you know if that's the case, um, then you know that that probably is is a net good for. I won't say it's to Biden's advantage, but it's a net good for him. I mean, it would be bad if he had to debate Trump. I think if 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 he can count on Trump being as lazy as he would like to be, given his uh, his cognitive challenges. Um, then he'll take advantage of that for sure. Um, but if Trump does, you know, I don't, I don't know, get all hopped up on amphetamines and hit the trail and find some of the old magic,
1: um, then Biden's going to have to, you know, shuffle out there. Yeah, I think I, I probably mostly agree with that. I mean, I do think that, I do think that Biden can sort of fall back on the like, well, like you know, and, and again, this is not something anyone, any other incumbent's been able to do. But you know, I think we all know, you know, that he's, he's older, but like, Hey, I'm, you know, busy, like actually being president. I also don't want to, you know, I think he also say like, I don't want to legitimize someone who I think is a, you know, illegitimate insurrection, you know, sort of play the greatest hits of like, you know, ultra maga being bad. Um, yeah. It doesn't seem like that we're probably going to be headed towards debates um, at, at this point. I mean, from the Republican side, right. For structural reasons that they are no longer part of the, whatever the, long name is of the, the, you know, the debate commission. Um, I I guess sort of the question I would have for you guys, though, is if you're, if you're John Tester, if you're Sherrod Brown, um, who, you know, those are going to be the sort of majority making seats for either party in the Senate at this point, West Virginia is is gone for Democrats when Joe Manchin announced he wasn't running other than the attention that Joe Biden brings by air force one touching down in, you know, Missoula or Cleveland or whatever. And, you know, him putting his arm around you and being like, this is our guy and we need to do, because even the, even the issues you see, you know, sort of democratic officials or you know, the Biden campaign or the DNC talk about, so it feels like real small ball stuff at this point, you know, making insulin. For, I mean, which again, not small ball to the people that would benefit from this stuff, but in the you know scheme of things of, you know, building a wall or free healthcare for everybody, you know, we're talking about like making insulin cheaper or free, uh, canceling student debt. Like, it just seems like the, the ambitions of our candidates from a policy sense, have become very modest. Um, like how how helpful is it really, uh, especially for somebody like Brown, where you know, uh, where you know, you probably want the presidential race more disconnected uh, from people's minds to some extent, uh, yeah, you know, because Donald Trump's going to win by eight or nine points in Ohio, and that you shared Brown need to run. A somewhat different race. Now, I, I think Biden probably is not as toxic there as you know Obama or Hillary Clinton, you know, would be somebody like that this cycle. But I, I just don't know that the president. I just think that the 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 best thing that Joe Biden can do at this point is no harm. And you know, I think just sort of focusing on governing and just making the case of you know I don't want to be on the same st- stage as a guy who you know led to the death of you know our our brave cops on January. 6- I, I think he could kind of fall back to something like that, and if he shows enough bigger at the convention, you know, and, and a few other sort of strategic places, you know, m- maybe that's enough.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, uh, it's it's going to be interesting to watch. Uh, for Dan, for John, I'm Ben Dominic. You have been listening to Thunderdome. You can subscribe to us at, over at thespectator.com, where you can also sign up uh, to get uh, a subscription to our print magazine, which I encourage you to do. Uh, it's a great publication. We have a great issue coming out uh, in the coming uh, week or so in which I delve into all the reasons why uh, donors decided to throw a ton of money at Nikki Haley at the last minute, uh, among other uh, great articles. Uh, you can subscribe again at thespectator.com the and we will be back next week with more to continue the cover this crazy 2024 election. <laughs>